Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. The Notation job site is powered by Getro, the job board and talent network platform for the world's top VC funds. More than 300 venture investors use Getro's tools to help their portfolio companies fill open roles faster, monitor hiring activity, and maximize connections across their network. Their software has saved us time and money while helping us add outsized value to our founders. Learn more at Getro.com. This episode is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB's services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form all three Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at cooleygo.com. Renata Quintini and Roseanne Winchek are general partners and co-founders of Renegade Partners, a new venture capital firm investing most often at the Series B stage or what they refer to as the super critical stage which we'll discuss in this episode. Before Renegade, Renata was a partner at Lux Capital and Felices Ventures, and before that, an LP at the Stanford University Endowment, investing in private markets and venture capital. Roseanne was previously at IVP and Canaan, investing in companies like Masterclass, TransferWise, Looker, and many others. Before venture, Roseanne received her master's in biophysics. Thank you both for doing this. Now our pleasure, and, and thank you for having the both of us, and I know we've been wrangling this for a while, so thank you. Well, very excited to have you both, um, Roseanne and, and Renata. Renata and I have been talking about this for a long time, so so glad glad to make it happen. I think a great place to start would be to each introduce yourselves and a little bit about your background and what both led you into venture, but also getting to Renegade, which we can get to. Renata. You do the honors. <laughs> because otherwise we're going to keep doing this throughout the podcast. That's okay. Um, you have like just the tiniest little bit of an accent, which will actually be helpful, I think, in identifying the speaker. Who is who? Excellent. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, which is really sad. So I grew up in Brazil. I've been here in the U.S. for 15 years. Um, and my dad now says I have an accent also and I speak Portuguese, so I can't win. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole VC thing, it just happened by a lot of luck. And I came to the U.S. I'm actually a lawyer by training. I practice law in Brazil before coming to Stanford to get a postgrad in law. And I used to work for VC and technology investing in Brazil as a lawyer. And I came to Stanford to do more in technology and law in 2004, 2005. And then when I got here, I looked around like, oh, you actually get skills and um, we all have a bunch of them and, you know, you get to follow your passion and, you know, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about people with big ideas and I'm also a big, big optimist. 
And, you know, lawyers spend their lives thinking about what can go wrong. And I like thinking about what can go right. So that clearly was not a good match for me. So female Brazilian in 2004, lawyer wanted to get into VC. That was my journey and like a lot of luck along the way. Um, I went back to Stanford for an MBA. And during the MBA, I ended up interning at the Stanford Endowment. And by the end of it, they offered me a job to stay. And I ended up working at the endowment at a time when venture capital itself was changing. All you know, seed managers, emerging managers, small, small firms were getting created. And I got to invest for the endowment in those types of funds. And I'm sure that that's going to come up later in the conversation. And again, luck stroke and ended up joining Felices, the three of us investing in their four, the first fund, $42 million. And that was how I kind of did the, trans, the transition. And if you told me back in the day that that's where I was going to end up, I would have said no way um, because I was against the odds and just, uh, yeah, a lot of luck and a lot of dots connecting. Sounds like you've, you've, you've a little bit of little bit of planning and skill too, though. I want to get to some of your experience at the Stanford Endowment and then also, you know, moving into Felicis and what that transition was like. But before I do, Roseanne, could you just give us background on yourself as well? Sure. So I am originally from the Midwest. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I really appreciate that you didn't say that I also have an accent because uh, that actually came up the other day. Uh, sometimes I get like real Ohio. I grew up in Brooklyn, so I think I've shed. <laughs> most, I think I've shed most of that accent at this point. But yeah, I still say pop and milk and like. I wear it with pride. Um, but yeah, I came out to California to go to college. Um, I went to Cal. I actually had like a kind of, you know, as a lot of people, a strange path into venture. So I was a chemistry undergrad and I actually started a PhD in biophysics, which is basically chemistry, also at Cal. And about, you know, two years into my PhD, I realized I like thinking about science and talking about science, but I didn't really like doing science. Uh, basically, you know, what I worked on was so narrow that maybe 10 people in the world really like understood the nuance and maybe five of them cared about it. And, you know, back then I was living, uh, since I went to graduate school at the same place that I went to college, I like wanted to have a different experience. And so I lived in the city and commuted and, you know, this is in like 2006, 2007 and everything was like really starting to come back. And like, you know, there were also like companies in the city for the first time, right? Like um, Twitter and um, Yelp and, and right. Like it wasn't like, not everything was like down on the peninsula yep. and it just felt like there was all this excitement going on and I was like locked in a lab. And so, you know, I did what I, anybody with half a PhD in biophysics does. So I started a Facebook app company that made like crappy Facebook apps and the, you know, crappy Facebook app days, um, which was really fun until it wasn't. They basically like, you know, shut everything down so that it was impossible to like, bring um, users into your app. And that was also around like September, 2008. And there were three of us and we were all like fresh out of school. And I just remember our parents looking at us and being like, you guys are idiots. Like you need to get jobs. And so I actually ended up going to like an enterprise SaaS business called NextBio that Illumina uh, eventually acquired. And it was actually one of our, um, our board members there that suggested I like think about venture. And I remember going home and reading everything I could and being like, oh my God, this is my dream job, right? Because it was like everything that I loved about academia, like the building mental models and experimenting. But instead of pipetting, I got to talk to people 
So it was just like a much better fit for my personality. And so I ended up going to the GSB and then I joined Canaan Partners kind of fresh out of that. Uh, how did you both meet? So we met when I was at Felice and Roseanne was still at Canaan and it was eight going on nine years and I'll stop counting because we're both, uh, you know, not fans of counting. And back then there were not a lot of women in the industry, right? So it was one of those, okay, early stage investors, women, you should meet. And we became really uh, fast collaborators, thought partners and confident sense. And then when Roseanne moved to IVP, we we're always uh, exchanging ideas, comparing notes and, and doing things together. Yeah, and it, it's like it, one of those things that there was always so much professional respect and so much like somebody that really meets you very well intellectually and also in terms of style. So we always looked at businesses in similar ways, business engines in similar ways. Uh, and, you know, I actually appreciate so much how rare this is. And thank you, whoever introduced us eight years ago that I cannot remember, but that changed my life. Yeah. I know. We like, Unfortunately, like we don't have some like meet cute story. Like we can't actually remember the first time that we met, but yeah, but there were lots of meetings after that. And especially when I moved to IVP, you know, a lot of times, you know, in growth investing, so much of it is, you know, having deep early stage relationships and especially tracking specific investors at specific firms. And Renata was always someone I tracked really closely. So Renata, I'd be curious just quickly, some of your learnings and experiences at Stanford at the endowment, because that is a kind of interesting, special, unique vantage point into venture at that time. And then for both of you, like making the transition into venture first jobs, um, Roseanne, you know, out of out of business school going into Canaan and then Renata, you know, out of Stanford, you know, I guess dropping down the stack, so to speak, into into Felicis. Yeah, what the learning curves looked like there and what maybe the surprises were, early challenges or, you know, pleasant surprises as part of those experiences. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, the, the time at Stanford was uniquely valuable for a few different reasons. I think number one, if you think about 10 years ago or more, actually VC was pretty opaque in terms of right. data, in terms of access to investors to even know what people thought, right? Like there wasn't the, the whole Twitter blog, this is my performance, these are my companies. It was really opaque. And Stanford put venture capital in business. So I had data and I had access to this amazing history and to these amazing investors firsthand. So that was one, right? And I played fantasy football, like I would invest in this company because of X, Y, and Z. And I actually also could see how things played out, right? So that was one. Yeah. I had amazing data and high quality data because in venture, you know, like, you know, a uh, few number of managers drive the vast majority of returns. So I had, uh, you know, a very uh, biased sample, but biased to the right side. Um, that was one. The other one is, and it ties to your second question of learnings, seeing what great looks like is a gift. And it sometimes it takes time in this career to see amazing, amazing founders, amazing companies, amazing performance, all those things. And I could actually, right, because like when we when we talk to the, the GPs of these amazing firms, they will tell you the trajectory of their best performing companies. They will tell you the thesis. They'll introduce you to those amazing CEOs. So I got a pretty early glimpse of Blueprint for Amazing. 
Mm-hmm. Right? But I remember like when you start investing, you can kind of say, oh, this is not interesting or this is not very good. It's the stuff in the middle that kills you until you hit enough balls to see amazing. Right. And I could see that early. And I'm very, very grateful for that. It was like, in some ways it was like, getting some of that like pattern recognition that's so important that you usually learn as a VC, but you were learning it like kind of at a, you know, level up the stack across all of the VCs that you worked with. Totally. And I was always connecting the dots. Right. And it's a bit like a bit like playing tennis. Um, You got to hit balls. Right. And you got to practice your your arm. And if you kind of wait for, oh, I do two deals a year type of model, three deals a year, it takes a long time for your pattern recognition to really kick in. So at number one, I started with, okay, let's look at the best performing venture portfolio in the world, the best managers. So like really that on steroids. And then when I went into Felices, which was super cool, I didn't have been investing as an angel for four years. And we had data in, uh, on over 100 companies. And the model of the firm was actually high number of portfolio companies when Felices first started. So I actually got a lot of great data and a lot of just like I practiced that hitting the ball so many times. And that was amazing. But then back to Stanford, the last piece of why that was incredible, it was right place at the right time because venture was changing. Yep. Seed became a thing. And what is this thing? And why does the world need another venture capital firm? Right. And, you know, there, there were, Andreessen Founders Fund, First Round, all these firms that, you know, back then were 12 getting started coming in, you know, Stanford was a natural place of conversation. And the big aha was, well, you got to look at what's changed for founders. Because if you thought, oh, the emerging, the existing managers always win the best opportunities and money, right? It's only a money type of arbitrage. New would never happen. So that whole product market fit changing and becoming cheaper to start, you could be in business with half a million bucks, a million bucks, but then you needed to figure it out in a year, year and a half. And these new firms really understood new challenge for founders equal new opportunity. And that was a big tectonic shift. So right place at the right time for me. Early learnings at Canaan, Roseanne? Yeah, um, I feel so lucky to have kind of gotten to like grow up at Canaan. Uh, like working so closely with Maha Ibrahim and Deepak Kamra. And I just remember when I joined, like Maha was like, you're going to be drinking from a fire hose. Like this is just a fire hose and just like see as much as you can. Because, you know, I had a bunch of friends that were all joining venture at the same time. And, you know, not all of them are here today. And, you know, Maha was very much like, relax, wait for your pitch and just like see as much as you can right? Like sit with as many partners, seeing as many deals, working on as many like different things as you can. Because right to Renata's point, like if you're only doing two to three deals a year, it's really hard to build that pattern recognition, right? But like if you actually get to like just dive in and work on a bunch of stuff, you know, it's actually a much faster way to get up the learning curve. And I was frustrated because like my friends were like off doing deals. And I was like, I want to do deals. It's time for me to do deals. And she was like, pump the brakes. And that was amazing, right? Because like really I got to spend like a couple of years just like really deeply learning. And um, and it's funny today because now that we have, you know, we have this incredible operating partner. I'm sure we're going to talk about her. But like I remember when she joined, she wanted, like she sent me this like Google Doc. And she's like, okay, write out, can you write down what like what a renegade deal is for me? And it's one of those things of like, well, like 
sometimes it's this and sometimes it's that. Because like, if you think about it, like a company is like this like hyper-dimensional object, right? And you're trying to like understand, you know, if it's interesting and every company looks different and, you know, different companies are valued in different ways and different metrics, you know, play out in different ways. And so it's like, it's not like you can just go down and like write out like 10 bullet points about like, oh, this is what a good deal is, right? Because like, we all know that that doesn't exist, right? These are like, there's so much complexity in system. And reflecting on that, I kind of feel like I was the same way, like walking into Canon and be like, okay, Maha, 10 bullet points. Like what's, what's a Canon deal? Tell me what it is so I can go do it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You got to like just sit and absorb and see as much as you possibly can because yeah, that, that's the only way to get up the learning curve. Yeah, it's interesting that it sounds like for Renato, it was more at seed, like actually doing like lots of investments and kind of learning through that way. And and maybe at Canaan, which is like slightly uh, later stage, it was more just about like the osmosis of seeing tons and tons and tons of investments, even if, you know, you only did a couple per year. Totally. And like, yeah. and Canaan and Felicis are very different firms, right? Like we got right. to kind of both grow up and really different, but like both very successful environments, right? Where Canaan is very much the like one to two deals per partner per year, very yep. ownership focused. Whereas Felicis was what there were like 90 some companies in fund one. Yep. Yep. So Roseanne, you went from Canaan to IVP. Renato, you went from Felicis to Lux. I'm curious, one, how you made the decision to move venture firms. You know, a lot of VCs particularly emerging managers and other folks younger in their career listen to this podcast. And I assume are maybe thinking about moving firms at some point. So I'm curious the dynamics and maybe decision-making through that. And then the obvious next question is why you decided to leave those firms and come together and start and start running it. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go first. Uh, so, you know, when I started at Felices, it was, I didn't send deep myself and an assistant and, we did everything from building the conference room table to the investing and everything in between. And I was there for almost seven years and it's one of my highest professional moments, like to see, to be part of uh, an incredible firm, an incredible brand working with amazing people and kind of seeing that firm evolve and being there through that. Um, So it wasn't an easy decision to switch or to go somewhere else. I first met the Lux team when I was at the Stanford Endowment. They pitched me when they were raising their fund and we stayed in touch since. When they opened Lux in Silicon Valley, I was the, one of the first people that Peter, one of the co-founders, reached out to and we stayed very close friends. Uh, and then Lux and Felices co-invested in a bunch of stuff, so sharing a bunch of boards. And I was on maternity leave with my third child and they, uh, the Lux team came to meet my baby and said, hey, you know, we like you so much and we just closed on our fifth fund and we'd love for you to join. So they also kind of got me in a, in a moment where you, you take the step back and you look, okay, what is, yeah. they, they really timed it perfectly. And for us, it was really the conversation of, wow, Lux has this amazing brand in deep technology. And I had a unique point of view to add to the table, which was not only I understood those types of businesses and companies, but I also had a track record of investing in great consumer businesses. And if you think about deep technology, it's going to touch everybody, right? And it's uh, either as a consumer or a user or a payer, it doesn't matter. And um, it was really symbiotic. And I, I love an adventure. 
so I made, I made the jump and I thought it was going to be forever really until Roseanne and I really started dreaming renegade and we couldn't stop. We like to joke that like that was all my fault. Cause I'm like, I'm, I'm a bit of an instigator. Curious to hear the, maybe the back. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of always just like assumed that I was an early stage person. You know, I had like a, you know, seed company and then I had been at like a series A, series B company and always kind of like in those networks. And so when I was interviewing at venture firms, um, you know, in business school, like I was just only thinking about early stage. And I have to say that I did feel like a little bit frustrated by like the typical series A model, right? Like, as I mentioned, like Kanan, very ownership focused, like I kind of just felt like I like in that world, I had like one chance to invest in a company. There was this like one little window of time where it was interesting enough that like it had enough traction that it was interesting, but it was still early enough that I could buy 20% of it for back then three to $5 million. The good old days, right? Yeah. Those, all right. So, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is that to me, like I had had a company, I had been in a company, I knew not everything was like up and to the right, like that there were lots of ups and downs. And I really just kind of wanted like flexibility to invest when I thought like there was something like imminently happening or like something interesting that I wanted to invest in rather than like that kind of one defined time. And also like the way that the series A market is, is that it's like everybody runs a process. It's a process. It's a very efficient market. And so it also felt to me as though it was, you know, more kind of driven by the market than me as an investor. And I wanted more flexibility. And around that time, like IBP approached me asking if I had ever thought about growth and like I hadn't, right? Like I had never talked to a growth one before. And I, I remember one of the partners being like, oh, it's weird because like we talked to like people in your business school class. I'm like, yeah, you would have like, you know, my, my, I don't have a growth investor resume, right? And like, I was never a banker. I was proudly the worst banker at IVP. I like made them put that I could have a Mac in my offer letter. <laughs> nice. But I also thought it was going to be really, like, it was also an interesting way to be differentiated, right? Because most growth investors had, you know, come from banking and come from big growth shops. But like, you know, I had been a PM, I had been a founder, like, I looked different than the average growth investor. And so I thought that that would also help me in, you know, in sourcing and, and in selling. But it's funny because like when I did first run IVP, I, I joked, I was like, oh, I just like want to do big Bs all day long. And so I think that I've kind of always been, like I've always been kind of like in this, this middle zone that we now call super critical stage, which I'm sure we're going to go into. But even when I got to IVP, I, I expected to be kind of on the early end of growth. And, and IVP was awesome. And I guess to kind of jump to your next point, like, I mean, I had a ton of fun at IVP, especially I joined at the beginning of 2015, like all the hedge funds and mutual funds were coming down. The market was like so hot and crazy. Also, we were like totally like, I think like we had like no associates that summer. So I also had to like learn how to be a banker, which was a pretty good like trial by fire. Um, learned a lot of skills that I never, thankfully never learned in banking. But I, uh, you know, we got to see like so many deals and like, and so many, I mean, that was, I, that really felt like the summer of the unicorn, right? Like everybody wanted a billion pre yeah. and many of those companies are, you know, hundred billion, hundred billion dollar companies today. It's amazing. But uh, I guess to kind of go into like why, why I instigated yeah. Renata. And it's like, I, w- I would not say, Renata is also a troublemaker and an instigator. I want to like put that out on the record. Don't out me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I like, so for me, like in, in retrospect now, it's like, this is so obvious just because I don't know. I mean, like my first job was starting a company. Like my parents were entrepreneurs. My grandparents are both like, they both owned a grocery store, right? They like, both have my grandparents. 
And so it's like kind of in my blood. And it's like always like just find kind of like something that like, oh, like you want to have a business. Like, so you start the business, then you like, or you want to work at a business. Like, so there's, you start the business you want to work at. And so I don't know, like, you know, just kind of thinking about like, like the firm, this idea of like, oh, like, what if you could do this? What if you could do that in inside of a venture firm? And actually how we kind of started working on this is that we were at, you know, like one of those dinners and at our end of the table is talking about like, oh, well, if I had my own firm, I would do this, I would do that. And mm. Renata and I were kind of like finishing each other's sentences. And I remember being like, hey, should we like talk about this, but like with less wine? And that was around Memorial Day of 2018. Um, and so we kind of started like, you know, working on it, straw manning then and, you know, been together ever since. Fantastic. So in all the planning meetings before you officially said, okay, we're going to leave our jobs and go start Renegade. I'm curious what the questions that you were asking yourself that you needed answers to and the questions that you were asking each other as future partners um, and founders of this firm and how you got conviction over some of those important questions during that period of planning. Yeah. And I think, you know, for us, the conversations were on two spectrums. One was, let's talk about strategy. Let's talk about investment returns and values around a winning firm that delivers superior returns. So like very early on, we were sharing track records. Like we were really in in the sense of like, these are the things I've done. This is, this is me as an investor early on and getting a really good glimpse on each other's strengths and, and all of that, because that we are, we were investing in each other. Right. Um, so, and we, we came from a place of tremendous professional respect and, and all of that, but kind of, okay, th- this is also what I'm strong at and understanding as an investor, where each of us, what each of us brings to the table. And we realized very quickly that we had a lot of overlap in the way that we looked at business engines, but our, areas of focus were different. So in terms of, for example, uh, you know, transportation, I was looking at things like cruise automation or Swift navigation, which like stacks into autonomous and Roseanne did keep trucking. Like we're both looking at transportation and what was changing in transportation, but we actually expressed that very different, differently as investors. That was one piece of it. And then really going like, okay, if we're going to build a firm, how do we differentiate and how do we win the best deals? And that's where the realization of, wow, scaling companies now is different than it was before. And it's not on the revenue front. It's not on the capital front. is on, on the organizational side, the people side, because you need to build a really amazing group of people that re- hires the best, retains the best, and can actually deliver financial returns, not only today, but for years to come. Like you need to really show investors that to unlock growth capital, not only you have a market size that is large and all those things, but you need to be an organization that can truly scale. And mm-hmm. And we said, well, this is a new, new challenge for early stage companies uh, that, okay, you figure out your product market fit, then you need to figure out, can I scale my org? And it really reminded me and of the, the what I saw at Stanford, which was like, wow, product market fit change, like tectonic shift and a founder journey. And I knew viscerally that those things create big opportunity for, for new 
and for investors and for all that. So we're like, okay, we have a reason to exist as a firm. And then the other piece too is like, let's understand how we can be the best partners to each other and to build a really like an amazing winning partnership. Um, so we have a coach for our team and for ourselves and this idea of where, and we operate like a company and, and, and I'll let Roseanne talk a little bit about that too. Cause like, it's a pretty important piece of what we think, but we really w- were thinking IQ EQ. And then before quitting our jobs, we have five trusted people who are in the industry and we showed them the strategy and the deck. And we said, are we crazy? And they like crazy enough that you're going to start something, but this makes total sense. So then we jumped. Yeah. And to Renata's point, like we're really big believers in like high-performing teams and, and seeing like seen inside of our companies, like what a high-performing executive team can accomplish. And so how can we actually build a firm that looks like that, right? It looks more like that, like looks more like a, an executive team inside of a company rather than a partnership. Um, a lot of the inspiration for this was like, what if we could create a venture firm that looked like a company that we'd want to invest in, right? Because so many, like as VCs, like we tell our companies to do these things, but we don't do them in our own business. And I think that's like such a missed opportunity because it works, right? Like we see that there's this kind of like recipe for Silicon Valley success that, you know, around like how you structure your team, how you incentivize people, the processes that you put in place. And so like, why wouldn't we want to do that too? To Renata's earlier point, though, I will add on, um, you know, it really was a lot of, like, on kind of how we decided to work together and, and partner. You know, like, we understand, like, the biggest risk in this business is us, right? And, like, is our, our relationship. And especially, you know, that I think that we've seen some big blow-ups in emerging managers, um, you know, people who end up, like, suing each other or they have to dissolve the fund because one of them gets kicked out, right? And so we took that really seriously, right? Because, like, we had great jobs, like, right? Like IVP is an amazing firm. Luxon is an incredible firm. We didn't have to do this, right? And so we really had to like believe in ourselves and each other. And a lot of that was like, as Renata mentioned, like, you know, we hired a coach, really like we believe in that, like you need to be a super high performer. And so we wanted to approach it, you know, as we would um, inside of a company. And, you know, we did like, like personality tests. We um, used this exercise called the operating manual. We actually like, we posted on our website, Yep. But just to really like understand ourselves and each other and our incentives, because like that's what drives your behavior, right? And like Renata and I like turned out to be incredibly well aligned. And, you know, there was like a, there could be a version of this that I had gone through the same process with another person and we would have gotten to the point of like, this isn't going to be forever. So we can't do this. What do you think, like, just to dig in a touch into the interpersonal stuff, like what were maybe some of the scary questions to ask each other that you needed to feel aligned on that maybe even felt like a little uncomfortable going through that process, if any? Uh, you know, I'm trying to remember like the specific questions, but like what, what like pops out to me was that there were a couple of like, oh shit moments. For instance, like I felt really like, I felt like we were like sneaking around. And it's funny because actually when I when I finally quit, people were like, oh, do you have an anchor? And I'm like, you think I would talk to, like actually for both of us, it's like, do you think we would talk to LPs when we were at our old firms? Like, no. Like, what if that got back to them? Like, how, like, or what if, like, LPs thought that, like, these two people are leaving and the firms are even, like, right? Like, no. Like, right. I think there were a lot of things that came up like that where it's like, no, we are very aligned on right. like, integrity here. But I do remember there was some, like, oh, shit moments. And I think kind of the, the one of the things that really, like, cemented it for me is that, like, when I was freaking out, Renata's like, oh, everything's fine. And when Renata was like, oh, my God, I'd be like, oh, this isn't a big deal. Like, we were definitely, like, 
in some ways, like, we're, I mean, we are very different humans, but like, we're also very complementary to each other. And like one, when one freaks out, the other one's like actually like in a pretty good spot. Were those oh shit moments like through the fundraising process? Yes. And. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I have a story about that if you want it. Please. So we had one, like, there was just like a day where we got a bunch of bad news, like from a bunch of different directions. And it was like a really hard day, right? Like this stuff is hard, right? Lots of ups and downs. And actually from the work we had done. So like when something bad happens or when Renata is stressed or like she needs to work, she needs to like work through it and like be productive because that makes her feel better. I need to wallow. Right. Mm -hmm. And because, and like, literally like, because of that, like that day I had my Uber drop me off at Whole Foods and I literally like bought ice cream and walked home. And Renata was like, I'm going to send like 50 emails and don't respond to them. And I like laid on the couch, like on my phone with ice cream. And she was like doing a bunch of work. And <laughs> right. the next day, like we both felt better. <laughs> right. But just like understanding each other and like not having to feel guilty that like, oh, I like, oh, all these emails are coming into my inbox and I just like really like don't want to respond to them right now because I'm like so wiped. Like just being able to have that conversation and having that knowledge of each other has made us so effective. Yep. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing it. So tell me about Renegade. Sorry, I took so long to get there, but um, I think the backstory is important and, and, and I think in some ways the most interesting piece here, but just overview on the firm strategy. And I'm curious because you have mentioned a lot of the operational details, both, you know, strategy as a firm, but also, you know, how you think about it from an organizational perspective. Yeah. So we really believe in this premise or this big idea of, okay, you got to solve an important problem for founders. And yes, capital piece of the equation, but what else has changed for founders? And we really, really believe that scaling organization is hard and is new and is faster, all those things. So we want to be a firm that helps you with that. So, and that's where the concept of supercritical comes from. And it's actually a conversation that Roseanne and I were having because we're like, the round letters don't mean anything anymore, right? And it's all kind of driven by VCs or different companies and then AA1, whatever, they mean different things. So we're like, so what, what does a company look like when it comes to an area that we feel that we can really be impactful at, et cetera? We're like, okay, the company has some revenues. They have some customer love. They raise, you know, they raise some money. They have an institutional investor on the cap table, have a board, but they're still going to upgrade their executive team. They're not ready for the growth funds to understand because they're not clipping a million in revenue a month, right? So like all these things, there's so much of the story that's unwritten but there's enough for us to kind of dig in and understand, are you really starting to build the early innings of a very, very sticky product or a very, very compelling business engine and all those things? So we're like, well, they're early in one some aspects, but they're also not raw. And then Rosanne's like, you know, there's this stage in chemistry <laughs> called the supercritical stage where, you know, I'm sure I'm going to botch this, but like things are uh gas and fluid at the same time and neither and it's called supercritical fluid and we're like yes that's it so that's how supercritical stage was born and we even like after this meeting we trademarked it immediately even though we did <laughs> we weren't even out of our jobs yet but we're like okay let's trademark this thing because we like it and there's something here uh so we are a, a firm that really focuses on helping companies go through that moment and from an operational perspective we said okay who does this job at a company. And we saw that HR has moved from a defensive check the box compliance thing to a very, very strategic function for a company. 
Uh, and, you know, chief people officer is the function that kind of takes care of not only just the, the recruiting and culture, but also alignment of an organization to the business outcomes. And we're like, okay, you know, a series, call it, you know, A1, B company cannot be competitive attracting a great chief people officer just because they're under supply, but we can. And we have this amazing woman called Susan Albin who joined us as a partner and she's our chief people officer. She was a first gem of Uber Eats, you know, created that business from zero to hundred million revenue in less than two years. Then she went to Zoom uh, Pizza to be their um, head of talent and culture. She joined when there were 30 people. She left, there were 600. So she's operated in fast growing high scale organizations and she's lived firsthand the biggest problems that workforces are facing today. Right. So at Zoom, she had people that literally were cutting and delivering food to people that were building robots and computer vision scientists. Company that spread all over the U.S. And, and so distributed, remote, different work profiles, all those things. So she's an amazing resource to us and to our companies that can really help companies think through the strategy of building and, and growing an org across many, many questions. I have to say, I was like lolling when you told the super critical story because it just is like us at our cores or like our pasts. Like I was like, oh, here's a chemistry term. And you're like, here, oh, let's trademark it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Old habits die hard. I'm like, crack it up here. (laughs) So roughly speaking, you would describe as your stage is typically like late series A, series A1 and series B. Which is pretty interesting because, you know, I mean, you have all the multi-stage funds, obviously, including, you know, IVP and, and, and others. But yeah, there are not too many that come to mind as really focused on that category. And I'm curious, one, if that description is correct. And then two, how do you see the firm kind of evolving over time? Yeah, so... Like you're right. Like it's a bunch of different. It's kind of different letters, right? Like we're not a we're not a bunch of this. Like the letters don't mean anything anymore because like yeah. companies yeah. always like three seed rounds and an A one. Yeah. So we how we think about it is, you know, kind of early revenue, maybe all the way up to a million dollars a month. Like 20, 30, 50, maybe all the way up to 100 employees, raising rounds that are 10 to 50. Yep. Um, but, but there's like already been institutional capital. So kind of like right, not not like a true true like Series A, but not a growth company yet. And, you know, to be honest, like one of the things that got me really like going on this was that, you know, at IVP, I loved meeting companies like when they were way too early for us and getting to know them over time. And often I would see around, I get to see around and I'm like, oh, I'm so into this company, but like, it's not a fit for us yet. And they'd be like, okay, so like, who should I talk to? Mm -hmm. And like each time it would be like a head scratcher, like, huh, like who does, like, who's going to do this? Cause it's not an A, but it's not like quite a growth round. And, but the truth of the matter is like, you can't build a firm just based on gaps in capital, right? Cause that's just like arbitrage. Like our market is so efficient. People will like fill that up right away. Right. right? And so really like to Renata's earlier point, like what we thought about was like, what has like significantly changed for companies today? And the truth of it is, is that like companies can be, tech companies can be bigger than ever, right? Like Shopify and Zoom are both $100 billion companies. Like, I don't think anybody put that in their model. I mean, obviously, like, COVID has sped all of this up. I think what we're realizing now is that, like, we've kind of, frankly, been underestimating the TAM of tech. But at the same time, like, in order to be a successful public name today, you have to be big, right? Because the vast, vast majority, like, all the retail um, volume, like, the vast majority of volume goes through indices and ETFs, right? And if you're a subscale public company, like, 
you don't get that access, right? So you're very thinly traded. Anybody can move your stock. Like that's a terrible place to live. And frankly, like I believe that that is like the problem that the growth market has like really solved, right? Is that like, it sucks today to be a subscale public company, right? Like, Hmm. you know, back in the bubble, like, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, like companies could go out with $10 million of revenue. They could be hundred million dollar market cap companies. Like that doesn't exist anymore. And I actually think it's because of the structural way our markets have changed, right? Like we don't have the same analyst model. So if you're a small name, you don't get analyst coverage. And like most of the trading happens, you know, I mean, at the, at the high end, I mean, if anything, we're seeing that, right? Like how much, like how much of the NASDAQ is, are the, the, you know, the big four tech names. So, you know, we saw that there was this like fundamental shift, right? Like the TAM of tech is bigger than ever, right? Like opportunity, like the opportunity size is bigger. Companies can be bigger. The impact they have on the world is bigger than ever. And like, that's exciting. And that's so juicy. Right. And like, frankly, like that's different, right? Like when Renato was at, at Felicis, like people would talk about like, you know, hundred million dollar acquisition from Google being a big win for seed investors that was. And like, now, like if somebody like is like underwriting that even at the seed stage, it's kind of like, right. Like that's not what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So companies can be bigger than ever, but that means they also need to be bigger than ever. And that was where so much of our thesis, like around, you know, helping organizations scale, like came from, right. Because like, you know, I saw this again and again at IVP, we would have, like, we'd see these amazing companies, right. That had like incredible financials, amazing product, like customers loved it, but like you dig in and the, and like the organization is just so raw. And it's just because like, this is all happening so fast. And you go from like being this like early stage company to being a big company so quickly, right? Like Hims launched three years ago and like now they're going to be public, right? Like it all happened so fast today, but like we're just big believers in like laying that foundation, building that infrastructure, building the processes around like scaling people is, is like such an important thing to build at that point because it can give you so much leverage, right? And if you do it wrong, we see great public companies that are mired in lawsuits today because of people issues, right? And it's not because they're bad, bad companies or bad people, like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but it's just because like this stuff is really hard and it's easier to get right when you're smaller. You both have lots of previous experience inside venture firms, raising capital, in Renata's case as an LP. I'm curious if you can speak to it, like how you began to have maybe the early conversations and how you went about the fundraising process itself. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, for us, the, the first piece of it was to ve- be very, very crisp on, we really believe that we're building an organization and an institution and a firm that performs like a company that we're really excited about. Uh, but also we needed to make sure it's like, it's like buying, it's like the real estate market, right? Like you need to have an amazing house in an amazing location. So like really understanding to the differentiation around the supercritical stage and was that deep enough? Was it ownable by us? Because we very, very much believe in you need to be top of mind for founders for this thing to work or for any type of, of venture capital firm to be successful. So that was one, one piece was really working on that differentiation and that, and that pitch and, and the legs of that. And then on the actual uh, conversations, so throughout my Stanford career, throughout Felices that we've involved in many fundraisers, Roseanne at IVP and Kenneth. So we actually had, we were lucky we had a Rolodex. Right. People that we could um, start with. And something that was really, really valuable were our GP friends that were actually really open and transparent with us, not just about who is 
uh, you know, good LP or bad LP, but it's more like, okay, these are the people who move fit fast, or these are the folks that, you know, they're not good for first close because they really, you know, want to see momentum or these folks who just talk to them, they're out of money for this year. So we could actually not only go through our deep Rolodex that we already had, and we were very lucky to have that, but also be able to prioritize and pre-qualify in a pretty effective way because our GP friends had been so incredible. And then also making introductions for us or putting in a award for us and saying, you know, this is the, these are two people you should meet in case there were new conversations and something like that. And that went a really long way. And that's the hardest part, qualifying LPs. And yeah, the outpouring from the industry, like the help from like our, the GPs were, was amazing, right? And especially like, you know, I think we're so lucky in that we have like kind of this like, you know, like people like Aileen and Kirsten and McDauber, right? Who had kind of done this, you know, now they're on fund three, fund four. Is Kirsten on fund five? Like, I mean, right, like five. they're like ahead, ahead of us. And it's like, it's so inspiring to be like, okay, like someday it's going to be like that but also just like so much help because like they know how hard it is to get started. And, you know, I, I think like we're really lucky. We have amazing LPs. It's like, like I like some of our LPs I just adore too. Like I just love them. But, and like, and right, we've been in the industry for a long time, but like, it's still like you're starting from zero. Right. And, and like to the earlier point, like, right. Like we didn't go and try and like, we didn't wait to quit our jobs until we had an anchor. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we went and like, we ended one thing before we started another. Even after all those experiences, any surprises? I think to me, the biggest surprise was actually what happened on macro and the velocity of fundraising of other funds and increasing in size in a way that we could, that was, even the LPs couldn't have predicted. So you would meet people early in May and they already spent for 2019, even though the closings Mm -hmm. hadn't happened. They were already allocated because like, oh, my portfolio is already coming back or they indicated that they're coming back and I have no more to spend. So actually kind of gauging the market and in one hand, experienced LPs that understand venture that have done, you know, spin outs before stuff like that. They understand you. But on the other hand, they also have a portfolio. Right. So kind of figuring out who is an ad mode and who would be a right match to really be a good supporter. Uh, it took us, you know, it took us some refining and some work and we're very lucky that we have found. Yep. But yeah. You guys are now in market investing. I'm just curious how you think about when you think out a few years for Renegade, what that, what that looks like from a fund and organizational perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we thought a lot about. And like one premise that we have, two two big premises we have is we know that fund size is fund strategy. And we really are focused on the supercritical stage and we want to have enough capital to be in the companies that make sense, but not be a, a, a large AOM for the hell of it. And we also know that early stage returns don't scale and we are an early stage venture capital firm and that's the type of returns we want to provide to our LPs. So that is like big, big alignment. And so fast forward the 10-year vision in terms of team, in terms of helping companies, we, you know, we will find what are other very high leverage, very surgical ways to help the way that Susan does, very strategic, high leverage, very differentiated, uh, very intentional. So, you know, will Susan have another peer or something that does something different? Absolutely what it is right now, we don't know. 
Um, we're talking to our founders and our customers to know what that is. Yep. And on the investment team side, we very much believe in um, equality and alignment and making the best decisions and Renegade coming first. So we have been talking to people about joining us. We have been long tracking folks. So it's not just Roseanne and myself, or it won't be. Um, and we think that something like at, at scale, four to five GPs is like a, a number that, that feels, feels right. I guess the one thing I would add to that is that, you know, also like equal partnership is really important to us, right? Like incentives drive behavior. And I think so much of the pain that we're seeing in the industry around generational transfer is just that the incentives are so misaligned, right? And, and to Renata's point too, like, and, and I think a lot of that gets exacerbated when you, when AUM gets very big and fee stream gets very large and, you know, firm strategy kind of gets fee driven because of that. And so, you know, we want to be like, we want to be an equal partnership going forward. Right. And I think it's actually a really healthy way to think about building our partnership because it's not like we're going to give, you know, have a bunch of people see if they like are good at the job and then have, and have them churn out. But like, right. It's like, we're going to dilute ourselves to bring somebody on that we think is going to be amazing and grow the pie for everybody. So yeah, long-term like four or five equal GPs having a ton of fun. Um, well, those will be very lucky additions. So congratulations to whoever that might be in the future. And thank you both so much for doing this. I really appreciate it and very excited about what you're building and congrats on all the um, good stuff so far and good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Nick. This is so fun. Thank you. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.